At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Do you ever feel like the world is spinning out of control? Amidst the world's chaos and growing opposition to our faith, economic hardship, and overwhelming challenges, we can find inspiration from the story of Elijah in 1 Kings. Despite facing an angry king, severe drought, massive opposition, and depression, Elijah lived a powerful and impactful life for God. Join us for our series, Elijah, as we learn how the same God Elijah served can use us to live a life of impact for his kingdom. haven't found 1 Kings 19, I'd, I'd invite you to do that. If you're in the room, there should be a Bible below the seat in front of you. Or if you're joining us online, maybe you have a device or a Bible close by, that'd be great. But we're going to be looking at this passage as we continue our study through the life of Elijah. So uh, in 1962, comic book editor uh, and creator Stan Lee and Steve Ditko introduced a character that would transform the comic book world. Off their kind of recent success from their Fantastic Four series, Lee and Ditko introduced to the comic book world a young teenager from Queens named Peter Parker. Most of you probably know him by his other name, Spider-Man. And the reason that Spider-Man kind of transformed comic books at the time and actually really was the launch and rise of the popularity of Marvel Comics was he was a different sort of superhero. Most superheroes at the time were larger than life. Think Superman or Wonder Woman or Green Lantern. They were incredible with incredible powers that seemed lofty and high and amazing. But Parker was different. He was portrayed in the comics as just an average teenager who struggled with loneliness, anxiety, to make his way through life. And in this, people resonated with the character significantly. In fact, in 1965, Esquire did a poll of college campuses and found that college students at the time ranked Spider-Man and the fellow Marvel hero, the Hulk, alongside Bob Dylan and Che Guevara as their favorite revolutionary icons. In fact, one interviewee said that he loved Spider-Man because he was beset by woes money problems, and the question of existence. In short, he was one of us. I think the popularity of Spider-Man reveals something interesting about our nature, which is, while at times we find inspiration from characters of great moral fabric and courage, we idealize our heroes, we often more deeply connect with people who exemplify the struggle and brokenness that we all face on a regular basis. We love the amazing Spider-Man because he's amazing, but he's also just a kid who struggles with self-doubt and loneliness like many of us do as well. The reality is the journey of faith often faces a lot of challenges. We we might not be faced with supervillains with mythical powers, but we are faced with a lot of brokenness injustice, loss, grief, unexpected realities, and insurmountable 
odds. And often when we're in that journey, many of us can feel the pressure that we're supposed to be these faith filled superheroes, that we conquer doubt in a single bound, that we navigate grief faster than a speeding bullet. And so when we struggle, we feel like we're always less than the ideal of what we should be. And in those moments, we look to say, is there anyone else like me? And where's God in the midst of this struggle and journey? We often look much more for the Spider-Mans in the world than the Superman's. As we've been studying through the life of Elijah, Elijah's felt a lot like Superman. He shows up on the scene in the nation of Israel when they're in a highly uh, pluralistic time period. Their king Ahab has led them astray from worshiping God alone and has brought in the worship of Baal, which was the god of the Phoenician people north of Israel at the time. And Elijah shows up to challenge Israel and call them back to the worship of God alone. And as he does, some pretty amazing thing happens. As we've been studying the last few weeks, we've seen these. And if you're just joining, I'll recap them for you briefly. Elijah shows up and essentially says that it's not going to rain for three years because Baal was the god of the storm and rain and fertility. And Elijah was directly challenging his reality and power. And so he shows up, he says, it's not going to rain for three years. And then he flees off to go live and he ends up living with a widow where God miraculously provides food for them when there's no food around. Not only that, the widow's son dies, Elijah prays for her, and he's raised from the dead, which seems pretty amazing. Uh, And then Elijah comes back to King Ahab, challenges the prophets of Baal directly, goes to Mount Carmel, prays that God would rain fire from heaven, which he does in dramatic fashion. Then afterwards, Elijah goes back on the mountain, prays that it would begin to rain again. It does. He tells the king then to go back to the capital city, and Elijah beats him there in a foot race when the king's in the chariot. So I don't know about you, but if you've read the last two chapters of Elijah, you're like, I don't know who this guy is, right? James later says that Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours, and I'm like, I don't know what kind of nature he has, but I don't think I have that nature. Right? It's, it's, like, it's like an ideal that seems beyond our reach. But today, we're going to encounter a story of Elijah where I think he's a little bit more like Spider-Man. And I think in this story, you're going to find some really helpful things for us in our own journey when we face the challenges and struggles and moments that we do. So let's jump into 1 Kings 19, and I'll unpack some things as we kind of go in this narrative. So it begins this way, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. The story begins with a pretty dramatic turn in the life of Elijah. We see the prophet who just recently was winning a foot race and raining down fire from heaven, suddenly fleeing to the wilderness and asking that God would take his life. It seems that Elijah goes from the highest of highs 
pretty quickly in four verses to the lowest of lows. And it naturally leads us to ask the question, well, what on earth is going on here? Well, what happens is Elijah has hit a crisis of faith. You see, Elijah had expected that God was going to show himself to the nation of Israel and that the nation of Israel was going to turn back to God. But when Elijah gets back to the capital city, where he's anticipating that Baal worship's going to be no more, that the people are going to turn back to God, that the corrupt leadership that had been leading would be ended, what he finds is that not only is that not the case, it's status quo as usual, and now it's worse because there's a price on his head. And he doesn't know what to do with facing the evil that's there. Remember, Jezebel is the high priestess of the Baal cult. She's the leader. The prophets of Baal would feast at her table. She's the one who's been influencing the king and leading Israel away from the worship of God. So naturally, Elijah expects that now that the people have turned, Jezebel's done with, but she's not done with. She's still in power and now comes to threaten Elijah. And what Elijah realizes is evil is still in charge and nothing has changed. That little phrase that you see in verse 3, then he was afraid. The original word in Hebrew can also be translated as the word saw or see. So what actually Elijah's doing is he isn't just scared. He isn't just all of a sudden freaking out like, I can't handle this. What he realizes is he looks at Israel and he realizes they're not changing. And so he quits. He's out. And he leaves. In fact, he tries to get as far away as he possibly can. The text notes that he flees to the city of Beersheba, which is the southernmost city in Judah, which is the kingdom below Israel. Just to help you understand a little bit what's going on here, let me show you a map for a second. So Elijah starts his journey, we saw this a couple weeks ago, at the very top of the orange part at Mount Carmel. He then journeys to Samaria or Jezreel, which is the capital, similar names, that's where he's found. He's challenged by Jezebel, and then he leaves to Beersheba, which is all the way down at the bottom part of Judah. So he's trying to, it's like, it's like if God, if you were like in Lansing, and then you were like, you know what, I can't hack it, I'm going to... Miami. Like, I'm trying to get as far as I can from this capital. So he gets all the way down there. When he gets there, he then releases his servant. Now, Elijah has a servant because he's a prophet. That's his ministry. It's his role, and the servant serves him in that capacity. So Elijah's releasing of his, of his servant is not him just, it's him quitting. It's him saying, I'm done. I'm out. Leave. I don't need you anymore. I'm done with this. And then he travels even further south into the wilderness and essentially says to God, take my life. Elijah expected something great from God and the response, and it didn't happen. And now he wants to be done. He's depressed, he's depleted, and he is done, not just with ministry, but even at this point with life itself. Why? Because he's failed. He essentially says, I'm no better than my fathers. I've done nothing to change the spiritual state of my people. Elijah's hit what I've come to know as the wall. The wall is a reality in the journey of faith where following God, we're met with a crisis of our reality and his reality. 
The wall actually originates from a book called The Critical Journey by Janet Hagberg and Robert Gulick, and I was introduced to it several years ago. They set out to kind of chronicle how do people actually grow spiritually, and what are kind of the modes or stages that happen within the journey of faith. And they recognize six different stages. And I'm not going to unpack all of that today. You're more than welcome to read the book. But one of the things they noted in their work and study is that oftentimes, somewhere along the journey of faith, usually not right at the beginning, but as we kind of walk, we hit moments called the wall. It's where our reality and what we desire clash with what reality is, and we wonder where God is in the midst of it. Oftentimes, the wall comes through a crisis. Pete Scazzaro, in his book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, notes this and describes the wall this way. He says, for most of us, the wall appears through a crisis that turns our world upside down. It comes perhaps through a divorce, a job loss, the death of a close friend or family member, a cancer diagnosis, a disillusioning church experience, a betrayal, a shattered dream, a wayward child, a car accident, an inability to get pregnant, a deep desire to marry that remains unfulfilled, a dryness or loss of joy in our relationship with God. We question ourselves, God, the church. We discover for the first time that our faith does not appear to work. We have more questions than answers as the very foundation of our faith feels like it's on the line. We don't know where God is, what he's doing, where he is going, how he is getting us there, or when this will be over. And the reality is every single person at some point hits the wall. And the truth is, you don't even just hit one wall. You might hit some major walls, but you hit walls in your progress and journey of following the Lord. Have you ever felt let down by God? Have you ever had a moment in your journey where you're like, God, I thought this thing was heading this way. I don't understand why we're over here. I don't think we're on the same page right now. So, like, you got to get it together and get on my page is usually how it goes, right? At least that's how it works in my life. But it's these moments in life where we're faced with the crisis of faith and we're asking the question, where are you at? Why why is this happening? And we all face those. I don't know about you, but I have trouble singing words like, you've never let me down. I have trouble with saying, oh yeah, your goodness is running after me. Because there's been moments in my life where I'm like, I don't think you call this goodness. At least not how it feels right now, in this moment. And so everyone faces the wall. And Elijah's facing the wall. He's at a moment in his life, in his crisis. He's like, God, I thought this was going to be the thing that would change everything. Right? Like imagine for a moment if you could gather everyone you knew in Ford Field and you could make God show up on command. You were like, God's going to do this, and he does it. Like, your immediate thing is like, revival is here. Everybody's turning to Jesus. Here we go. Nothing changes. Evil doesn't stop. It doesn't even lose power. And now it's coming after him. And you have to imagine Elijah in this moment is sitting there going, God, I'm out. I'm done. I can't do this. And I think it naturally leads to the question, and what we're going to see in the text, we all hit walls. Elijah hits a wall. How does God actually respond in our wall moments? 
Like, where is God at in those realities? Because what you're going to see today is that God actually responds to the reality of the wall with incredible grace. And you're going to see grace in three specific ways that I think are not only true for the life of Elijah, but are actually available to us in our own walls and our own journey through them. So let's continue the story. You're going to see the first one come pretty quickly. So again, hear Elijah's words. And he asked that he might die, verse 4, saying, It is enough now, O Lord. Take my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. So the first thing we see as God comes to Elijah in the midst of the wall is that God comes and provides Elijah physical refreshment. Elijah's exhausted, right? I showed you the journey. Like, he's gone a lot of miles at this point, and there's no cars back then. So he's tired. He can't continue. He doesn't have the physical resources necessary to continue where God is leading. And not only that, he's in the wilderness. And I don't know about if you know this, but there's not a lot of food in the wilderness. So what does God do? God shows up. And what does he provide? He provides food and rest. He provides physical refreshment. See, oftentimes when we're in the crisis of faith, we can forget about our physical reality. But we're physical beings. God's created our physical bodies, and our physical bodies are important for the spiritual journeys that we take. And so as God desires to lead Elijah in this spiritual journey, he's going to take him to Mount Horeb, which is actually another name for Mount Sinai, which is where God fashioned his covenant with his people. And you're going to see why in a moment. But as God brings Elijah from this wall moment towards the journey he wants, the first thing he does is he provides physical sustenance for him. Our physical being is important to our spiritual journey. And when you're in the wall, when you're in a crisis of faith, it's extremely important. And oftentimes it can be the first thing to go, and yet God in his grace shows up here. Not only that, so you note in the text, it repeats twice. He was tired and he slept, and an angel came. He woke up and ate, fell asleep again. The angel shows up. This time it's noted that it's the angel of Yahweh, which when you read through the Old Testament is associated with God's presence himself. And when you connect it to the New Testament, what you actually see is this is the pre-incarnate Christ. So this is Jesus coming to Elijah to provide for him. And once again, he provides what is necessary for him to continue the journey. And I think what we're reminded from the get-go in the repetition of the text is that part of the reality that God provides is his common grace of providing food and rest. You might think that's minimal, but when you're in a crisis, those are huge things. Because often sleep is hard to come by, and food 
doesn't feel very tasty. But yet, they become important aspects of God's grace when we're in those moments. Because our physical being matters, and it's connected with our spiritual reality. I was recently reading a book called The Good and Beautiful God by James Bryant Smith. James Bryant Smith was a disciple of Richard Foster and Dallas Willard. Some of you might know those names. If you don't, don't worry about it. But uh, he wrote a series on spiritual formation to help us grow in our faith. And the very first book in that series is called The Good and Beautiful God. And in that book, he seeks to help us learn what God is like, who God is from Scripture, some of what our false ideas is, and to kind of reorient us towards the truth. He calls it knowing the God that Jesus knew. And the very first chapter that he writes in the book, he asks the question, what are you seeking? What, what God are you looking for? Are you looking for the God of Scripture? Are you looking for the God of Jesus? He invites his readers to consider what he's going to lead them on. And one of the things that's significant in the book is he, he desires for it to be a book not just of head knowledge, but also of practice, that actually there's training that's engage with it. So every chapter, he ends with what he calls soul training, which is kind of spiritual practices that can help us grow. And so I picked up this book, and I'm reading through the first chapter, and I'm like, oh, this is good stuff. It's good stuff. And I get to the first spiritual practice, and you naturally start to think, like, what's he going to say? Is it prayer? Is it the word? Is it fasting? Is it something this? You know what his first practice for soul training was? Sleep. Sleep. And this is what he says at the beginning of that chapter in the book. He says, the number one enemy of Christian spiritual formation today is exhaustion. We're exhausted. He notes in that book that in the 1950s, the average American slept nine and a half hours a night. Today, it's under seven. And that at one point, the National Institute of Mental Health did a study in which they, asked, or which they invited participants to sleep as much as they could each night. Some of us are like, oh, that sounds so nice. I, I want that. And they saw that on average, people slept eight and a half hours. And those who participated in the study said they felt happier, less fatigued, more creative, energetic, and productive. Food, sleep, these things matter in the sense of crisis. And God provides those. So when you're faced with the wall, don't, don't neglect, don't over-spiritualize your reality so much that you fail to realize that sometimes what you need for your own journey is a good nap and a good meal. Those are actually spiritual things. It's what Elijah needed. He can't get to the next part until God provides what is necessary for the journey. And you and I need it as well. We need Sabbath and sleep and food. And God, out of his grace, provides those things for us. He gives us physical refreshment. But God not only gives Elijah physical refreshment, he also gives him his personal presence. Look what happens next in the text. So he arose, verse 8, and drank and went in the strength in that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. Now, again, that's a highly symbolic number. You're going to see a lot of patterning here through the text in relationship to Israel's journey prior. Israel wandered in the desert, in the wilderness, for 40 years because of their disobedience. Elijah takes a reverse journey. It's a little shorter, but it's meant to pattern after that, to be brought back to the mountain where God formed his covenant with Moses and the people. So there, in verse 9, he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? 
Now, some people see this as an accusation. I don't think it's an accusation. I don't think this is God saying, what are you doing here, Elijah? I think this is actually an invitation. I think this is a grace of God where he recognizes the place that Elijah in, and Elijah has legitimate complaints. You're going to see that. And then God just saying like, hey, be quiet. No one cares what you have to say. God actually engages him to say, hey, what are you doing here? What's going on? And Elijah said, verse 10, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. So Elijah comes. And I don't think what he's saying here, I don't, I don't think Elijah's self-focused in this moment. I don't think he's saying, like, I'm the only one. I think what he's trying to say is, listen, your people have gone bad. Like, this thing has gone nuclear. They're tearing down your altars. They're killing your prophets. Now they're coming after me, and all I'm trying to do is get them to worship you. Like, God, do you see what's going on here? Like, he's at the crisis. He doesn't know, and he's bringing his accusation against Israel. And how does God respond? Verse 11, he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. Now, when you hear that phrase, you're immediately going to be clued in because there was another person who stood on this mountain many years before in this exact place. It was Moses. And Moses engaged God's presence there, formed and founded the covenant that God would have with his people. And so we're supposed to think, oh, here's another Moses moment because Moses said there was going to be a prophet that came after him that was like him. And so we naturally start to think, oh, that's Elijah. He's called to the covenant mountain of God. He's going to engage in the same way. But look what happens. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. So Elijah, in his moment of crisis, as he brings this accusation, God responds. And as he responds, God is highlighting a contrast between two realities in the way that he responds. The first thing he wants you to see is that he is a God that is not like any other God. Remember, one of the contrasts we've seen throughout the Elijah narrative is between God and Baal. Baal is the God of storm. He's the God of lightning. He's the God of rain. He's the God of fertility. And so in a moment, the expectation is, yeah, gods show up in power and might. And God says, no, 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 no. I don't come in wind. I don't come like that God. I come in my own way. I'm different. I come in silence and my word. And the second thing you're supposed to see is in contrast to the way in which God came to Moses. For God did show Moses his glory on the mountain. But here, God shows Elijah in a different way. Instead of showing him his back, he speaks in a very low, the text is a low whisper. It's hard to translate this exact idea. It carries the idea of a word, but it also carries the idea of silence. So it's like a word of silence. You can figure out how that's the case. 
but, but it's meant to help you see that God doesn't come in the same way, that he's personal to Elijah here, but that his presence is vital to the moment. You see, it's easy when we're in the place of the wall to expect God to show up on our terms and our way. Because here's the reality. If you've been in the wall, you could probably relate to this. When you're in the wall, there are so many times where you say, God, if you would just do this, then I'll know you're with me. Then I'll know it'll be okay. If you would just do something spectacular here, I don't care, take that person out. Reveal yourself in fire. Whatever it is, could you just do that so there's no doubt? And often in the wall, you want to define how God will bring his presence to you by your terms. But God reminds Elijah here, I don't come on your terms. I come on my terms. But if you'll come to me on my terms, I'm there with you. I'm present with you. And often one of the things we see here is that God often comes to his people in stillness and quiet and by his word. It is how he works. One of the things I've learned in my own journey through the walls over the course of my life is how important cultivating silence and stillness and slowness are to being tuned in to the voice of God in those moments. Because we live in a world constantly vying for our attention. We've got phones that ding every other second. We're constantly filling our minds, pursuing media, ads, busyness. I'll be honest, if I was up on the mountain looking for God, I probably would have missed the whisper because I would have had my AirPods in listening to another podcast to fill my mind with more information than I probably need. Because we're constantly at the point of exhaustion. More, more, more. And yet it's in a gentle whisper, in the sound of silence, that God's word comes to speak to the heart. And I can only give testimony to my own life many times. This is how I've seen and experienced God. Not in busyness, not in franticness, in stillness, in solitude, in silence, with his word and with his spirit. And so if you're in the place of the wall, I think taking a cue from Elijah here is key. Don't run to more information. Run to the presence of God. Find space in your life. Get with his word. Take a journal. Shut off your phone. I said shut it off. Not just put it aside. Shut it off. Get somewhere where you're not going to be distracted. And be and seek his presence. He'll come to you. It might not be in the same way he came to Elijah, just like it wasn't in the same way he came to Moses. But he'll come. And listen, if you're going to journey through the wall, you need his voice. You, you will not make it without it. So you have to learn how to cultivate that in your life. And often silence, stillness, solitude, and slowness become really imperative. Finally, the last thing we see God out of his grace in Elijah, right? He brings physical refreshment. He brings his personal presence. But lastly, he brings a promised plan. Verse 13, when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? So apparently there was some miscommunication the first time. So we're coming back to the question. And what does Elijah do? Same words. I have been very jealous 
for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. So Elijah's been refreshed. He's in the presence of God, but the accusation still remains. He's still struggling and wrestling in the moment. God, don't you see what's going on here? Your, Your people have left you. This thing's over, and I'm done. So I don't know what's happening, but it sure seems like your plan is at an end. And look how God responds in verse 15. And the Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazazel to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Maholan, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazel shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet, now catch this, I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. What God comes back in the moment of Elijah's crisis of faith is God comes back and says, whoa, 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 whoa. Just because things are bad doesn't mean I've lost the plot. It doesn't mean I don't have a plan here. In fact, I do have a plan, and as part of that plan, I have a mission for you to participate in. So I want you to go and anoint this king in Syria. Now, that's a weird call, because generally Hebrew prophets don't anoint kings in other countries. But it's highly symbolic, because what God is saying, God had promised that when his people had turned from him so completely that there was no hope in their repentance, which is what's happening in Israel, that he would come to bring judgment against his people, to send them into exile, to remove them from the promised land and take away his blessing for a season so that they would turn back to him. So when God says, I want you to go anoint Syria, he's saying, I've got a plan and I'm gonna bring my judgment against the evil that you're seeing. Don't worry. But that's the whole thing about death. It's, It's a symbolic reality of judgment. That's what he's trying to communicate. But God says, but... I also have this remnant. I've got a people that I'm going to work from to cultivate so that my plan continues. The number here of 7,000 is highly symbolic. In fact, one commentator notes that seven is the symbolic numeral of holiness, the covenant, and it marks those who are left as a holy company, faithful to God's covenant as the holy seed of his people. I like the one other commentator say, grace always has a remnant. So yes, God's going to bring judgment, but that's not going to stop his plan or his people. He will cultivate those who are his, and he will continue his plan that he started in Abraham to bring blessing to the nations. This is what he promises. And so what he's communicating to Elijah is, right, because here's the deal. When you're in the place of the wall, your natural inkling, one, is to take more upon your shoulders than you probably should, which is what Elijah says. Like, I'm out. They want to kill me. If I'm dead, who's left? And God's like, oh, it's not about you, Elijah. Don't worry. I got somebody else. His name sounds just like yours, so don't worry. (laughs) So it's not all you. And then your second thing is like, where are we going? Like, what's happening? I don't know if you've ever taken a a car trip with young children to surprise them somewhere, but if you do, I can guarantee you're going to get two questions, right? When are we going to get there? Are we there yet? 
and what's the plan? Like, what are we doing? Because for whatever reason, kids' mind sitting in the ne- back seat next to their brother for two hours somehow is the worst moment of their life. I don't understand it. It doesn't seem that terrible to me. Maybe when I was a kid, I thought it was terrible. And so it's natural to ask the question when you don't know. You're like, hey, I've got something. Just hang tight. Are we there yet? What's the plan? This is Elijah's moment. When you're at the wall, that's the question. God, where's this thing going, and when are we going to get there? And God comes back and says, hold on. I got a plan, but you got to trust me. You see, faith in the midst of the wall is embracing the path of the wall because you trust that God has something on the other side that you haven't seen yet. Most people, when they hit the wall, they want to turn back. They want to go back to what's familiar, what they know, and they don't experience the spiritual breakthrough that God wants to bring. So what God comes and he says and reminds them is, I have a plan, but you're going to have to trust me, and faith is embracing the path I'm going to lead you on. So for Elijah, it's go anoint these kings and, and the prophet that's going to follow you. For you, it might be something else. But in the wall, God is going to invite you to a promise, to a plan that's on the other side. The question is, will you lean in and follow where he's leading you because it's out of his grace, or will you turn back? God always promises that on the other side of even the most great crisis of our faith, there is good fruit to come. That's why the apostle Paul would write to the Corinthian church when they were in crisis, and he says, we don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The reality of the wall is that God has glorious riches on the other side. He's preparing for you in your moment of crisis something that's in accordance with the eternal weight of glory. What a promise. But faith is required to follow him as he leads you through the crisis. And that means sometimes it gets harder before it gets better. But the promise is, I have a plan. Will you trust me? I know where this thing's going, and I know when they're going to get there. And it might feel like the worst thing in the world to have to sit next to your sibling for two hours or to endure the loss of a loved one or a diagnosis or some crisis in your life. But I've got something better. It's going to come. And you say, well, how do I know? How can I be assured of that? Well, I don't think you have to look any further than the person that faced the greatest wall who was greater than Moses and greater than Elijah, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Because the truth of the gospel reminds us that we can have God's grace in this way because he didn't. He took upon us rejection so we might receive the promises of acceptance. Think of Jesus. When he was hungry, he wasn't nourished with food. He was given vinegar on the cross bitterness to swallow. When he desired God's presence, he didn't get a still small voice on a mountain, but cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And instead of God's plan coming in judgment, the Son of God took divine judgment upon himself so that we would not experience judgment and could be part of the remnant of the people of faith. And he would face the ultimate wall, death. But in that, he would journey through to the other side to open up a way for resurrection for you and I. 
that we could know that in part now and know it fully one day. You see, the reality of the truth of the gospel is there's lots of Spider-Mans, there's only one Superman. And he doesn't defeat evil by leaping over buildings or stopping bullets. He defeats it by laying down his life in our place so that our brokenness can be transformed. So like in Elijah, when you hit the wall, you can know that God will bring you physical refreshment, that he will bring you personal presence, and that he has a promised plan. I mean, didn't Jesus say this to his followers himself? Was it not him who said, why do you worry about what you eat or wear? Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. Was it not our Savior who said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I am with you always, even to the ends of the age. And even in his call to go and make disciples, that you and I have a mission to fulfill like Elijah did, Jesus reminded us, I will come to you and take you to where I am. I've got a plan for where this thing goes. So we see this reality not only in the life of Jesus and in his words, but in how he lived it out. Because the truth of the gospel is, because of Jesus, we receive the grace of God, and it's the grace of God that sustains us through every single wall that we face. And when we follow it and lean into that grace, God will bring us to the other side. So when you face that wall, and maybe you're there today, fix your eyes on Jesus. He wants to lead you through it. And he's already forged the path. Faith is just being willing to follow as he leads. And I pray God would bless you in that journey. But as I thought about this text for a moment, I thought, you know, it's probably a good response for us. Instead of me just praying for you initially, to actually respond by allowing God to just minister to our hearts. That if he does come in silence and stillness, and if his desire is to make his presence known today, which he is, then maybe just for a moment as we gather, we could just embrace a moment of silence. It might be a little awkward because we're not used to it, but that's okay. Let's embrace it together. It's just a step of just quieting down for a moment. Your kids are okay. Your phone doesn't have any notifications. Anything can wait. How about we just 60 seconds of silence and let God stir our hearts and then the t- and I'll pray for us and the team will come and lead us in a time of just responding and singing. Let's just take a moment of silence together.
God, we praise you this morning because you are a God that although you don't come on our terms, you come on your terms, you do come to us. That your desire is to be with us, that you sent your son for us, that you gave your spirit to us. And so we praise you even now that you're here and that even when we're in the midst of the crisis of life, we can still know your presence because of what Jesus has done. And so, Father, I just pray right now as we prepare to just respond by focusing our eyes and our hearts in praise to you, that your spirit would continue to just make your presence known to each and every heart. That we would leave knowing that we've encountered you and just have a sense of your presence this morning. That that would lead us as we continue our journey, no matter where we're at. So even now, would you move as we praise you through song, we ask in Jesus' good name. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.